Welcome back to Bulls with the Bard. My name is Cakes, I am your host, and welcome to A Plague, a season where we talk to underrepresented communities in Shakespeare about where we are falling short and how we can do better by them. Today we are talking about the corporate theater model and neurodiversity in Shakespeare with Jeff Miller. Jeff is a theater artist, teacher, administrator, cat dad, tabletop gamer, and professional wrestler trainee based in the Baltimore area. Favorite Shakespeare plays of theirs include Julius Caesar, The War of the Roses Cycle, all of the comedies, and some of the bad plays. A couple quick notes about today's episode. We filmed this back in April when we thought the season was going to come out a little bit earlier, and this was our first time using this sound equipment. So you may hear that I sound a little wonky during the interview. Apologies for the inconvenience, and rest assured we have fixed those sound issues for the rest of the season. I am so excited to share my interview with Jeff with y'all, but first, as always, we got a little high. a long time away, and we are returning with Bulls with the Bard's first ever guest, Jeff Miller. Ah! I am so excited <laughs> to have you here, especially after our world got hit by a plague. Yeah. What did you do oh my during gosh. that pandemic? Uh, I got a master's degree. Oh, wow. Uh, my, <laughs> my second master's degree. So... I had gotten, I was sort of towards the tail end of my Master of Letters at Mary Baldwin's uh, Shakespeare and Performance Program, um, and it was at the tail end, and I was still kind of waffling over whether or not I was going to pursue the MFA or sort of move back to Baltimore and start working, um, but... The pandemic kind of made that choice easy for me because he yeah. was like, well, I could go back to there being no theater uh, or I could just stay one year and get this other terminal degree. And I was like, well, I'm definitely doing that then. Um, so we did theater during the pandemic. We produced a season of six full shows, um, all of them live. Uh, well... We performed them live and filmed them. It, it wasn't Zoom theater, but it wasn't. There wasn't a live audience. Um, so yeah, we learned a lot of really interesting uh, performance things about how to perform intimacy and violence without being any closer than six feet to each other, and in masks, um, performing in masks really fun uh acting challenge that's like running with weights on yeah and you were doing it in i i saw your midsummer night stream you were doing it in the american shakespeare center's space yes which is like projecting with well, masks on yeah i mean also the nice thing about that space is it's the acoustics are fantastic hmm. it is it is built to pick up sounds everywhere um, so that's uh, unlike a lot of other theaters that have a lot of deadening, it's all wood. So everything kind of reverberates um, nicely in that space. Um, 
anyway, uh, <laughs> too far off topic. Let's talk. Um, so yes, we we put on uh, we put on six productions, um, and during that time, um, this was also shortly after uh, sort of the summer of theater. Me too, um, and there was a lot of stuff around there going out. Um, and so I was looking at sort of my own personal frustrations with the theater industry along, coupled with uh, the sort of outcry of abuse of power and sort of a lot of unspoken complaints that I've heard and thinking about, you know, what do we do? Like, how can, how can I continue to exist in this system that doesn't seem to support artists in the way that they need to be supported? Um, and that's when I really started getting into business and theater administration. Uh, so, um, I took sort of half of the MBA programs, business courses in their master, uh, their sort of management, uh, MBA. So in addition to my theater MFA classes, I was also taking MBA classes at the same time concurrently. Um, and it was a really, really great eye-opening experience looking at sort of the way that other industries and other businesses view themselves, um, that some of the practices I was sort of posting about and talking about in my business classes uh, surrounded theater that we just sort of take for granted as being, you know, part of the culture that, you know, the business majors sort of scoff at and it's like how how are you living this way huh. it just things that wouldn't happen in other industries um a lot of which surrounding uh things like personal time and you know leave sick leave and and um uh, re replacement training and things like that and it's just uh, the things that are expected of actors and, and artists um, just don't line up with professionals from other industries and professionals that have master's degrees, like a lot of you know artists, but but somehow our master's degrees aren't respected and not uh, they don't. Uh, privilege us to certain things that in, in you know any other field if you have a master of business if you have a master of in in a medical field if you have a master's in uh you know uh, sciences right math all of these things like those people with those kinds of degrees get get certain kind of securities in their hiring and in you know in their practices that artists are just expected to not have yeah. um looking around uh and at that it kind of an idea kind of formed into my head about you know what 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 am i missing most in theater like what is the most frustrating thing in theater and for me that's the instability and the idea that uh as an artist you have very little uh institutional power and also very little institutional stake because of your expendability uh within the business model the fact that uh at the admin 
right? The executives of theater um, are afforded, you know, salary contracts and uh, have have this decision making power uh, when somebody an artist speaks up about an imbalance of power present in their system uh, it's much more financially viable for the theater business to get rid of the whistleblower and and we've we've only got one union uh and uh don't i know it that's that's uh, you know a whole other bag of worms about our union in comparison to other unions but there's uh, there's if you're let go at a theater there's really very little you can do there's there's you know they can they can get rid of you for any number of reasons and and still have legal standing and it's not on the same degree of you know severance and all of these other things um and not only that the theater network is very close knit and if one person says hey i don't like working with this person guess what that person's not working <laughs> at least in this sort of immediate circle um and, and so what do you do you as as an artist uh, you move on rather than say anything and try and improve the organization that you're in because it, it's easier and it's expected of you to pick up and leave and go somewhere else where where you can maybe find a better situation. And, I, and th that's just not acceptable. Uh, so this vertical authoritarian power structure of the single, usually white male artistic director that sort of trickles down the line to the rest of the company and that the bottom here are the artists and then shortly under them are volunteers is is to try and even out the scale of this power structure uh, so that there is some stake that that not only it's not only you know protection for the actors right and protect i keep saying actors but it's it's artists across the board technicians all all you know the people involved in theater um that are not management that's it's not only protection for those people artists but it is also protection and uh a good thing for the companies themselves because if your actors I'm, I'll use actors as shorthand for artists. Um, it, it is, you know, this is the situation I'm most approaching it from the perspective of. If your actors have stake in the success of the company, if they are personally invested in the outcome of the success of that theater, then you're going to get a better product from them. You're going to, you're going to get. Not only are they going to be motivated to do a better job and support you in your endeavors, um, they are more willing to be a part of the local community. And, and in association with that theater, audience members will return for those performers, right? Uh, it, as, as this sort of hub, right? And, and those relationships will be sort of buoyed by that, right? So the idea of taking artists and putting them within that sort of management level uh, pay structure, 
this this yearly salary for actors, the corporate actor, mm. right? You know, not only they'll be allowed to say things, right? Because it's much more costly to replace one of those actors than it is for your, oh, here's your four-month gig, uh, and and goodbye. Yeah, just any, any number of things from the community to the success of the business to... Uh, being able to use that person's uh, talents beyond acting, right? Whether that's within the education department or in the marketing department or um, outreach, getting donors, things like that, right? Um, so, so yes, it's it's spreading the it, it's it's shifting this pyramid sort of ladder structure a little bit more sideways. Okay. spreading spreading the wealth a little bit people who are not who were not fans of my idea would scoff and say well are you devaluing executives entirely like are you just are you trying to do socialist theater are you <laughs> is it are you doing are you doing this communist socialist theater where everybody's exactly the same and management and actors and 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 that's not exactly what i'm advocating I'm not, I'm not saying everyone in every position should be paid exactly the same. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that uh, the experience and the uh, value, relative value, uh, of executives does not exist. Right. I, that's, I, I, it, is, it is an extremely valuable and, and, you know, having the strongest actors does not matter if your leadership is poor. It just doesn't. Um, and so uh, I'm saying that it should be it should be proportional, right? It should not be, you know, 80, 20. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, right? Right? It's, it's because, you know, guess what? Your actors are the ones generating your value. They're, they're generating your value. You should pay them proportionally to the success of your own business. If you're, you know, if you have great ticket sales, guess what? I mean, that's marketing and it's also the performers, right? It's, it's, it's both of those things. And so when actor pay remains the same, regardless of performance, it's it's tough to 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 stay uh stay in that place um so yeah performance driven uh benefits guess what just like any other industry right if you if you're good at your job you get paid more like i mean Certainly, in an ideal society, not, not you know worker exploitations, the whole all of those things, but like in an ideal world, you do a good job, you get paid more, right? That's yes. you know. In, a, in any other like healthy business model, that is how that's gonna work. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, I don't know if I ever got to the so yes, <laughs> what I did, what I did last summer. Um, in, in pandemic land. Um, so, all of that stuff was a problem. And so I took those classes, in the business classes, I, um, my MFA cohort was a really great place to try and implement this model um, because we were equivalent in power, 
we were equivalent in uh, as a cohort we ran a theater company and so no one member of that theater company was more uh, important to the success of the company than other people. You also couldn't fire people <laughs> if you, you know, if you didn't get along from the cohort, right? You just, you know, you work, you work together and you know, split the labor to to sort of make it work, and and everyone sort of split the benefits of all that we all got MFA degrees, um, and so it was it was really interesting and some of the uh, you know, it, it had positives and it had negatives, um, namely that, uh, you know, the more equal everybody is, the people who are really, you know, resistant to the plan of the rest of the group can be really stymieing, hmm. um, because there's no, uh, horizontal, there's not a horizontal leadership, there's not really much accountability for the mm -hmm. people individually. Mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's no one to like put the final foot down. Right, which which was which was kind of a, a major thing for my thesis. Right, it was a major thing for uh, you know opponents of what I'm suggesting, saying, well, who's accountable to anybody? Right, what you know. Who, how do you have accountability in a system where people are the same? Um, and I, I think, I mean, it's, it's got to be, it has to be by committee, right? It's, it's are you, as an individual, uh, getting in the way of the success of the group as a collective? And that there's not one person who dictates that based on their singular definition of the success of the company, mm -hmm. that it's a collective, okay, what is our vision, right? What is, what is our way of running our business? Um, and does this person, is this person sort of in violation of that? You know, there's sort of the independent, you know, review board as a, as a, possible thing and I and I, yeah it's it's a combination of the collective with the review rights um, and this got me into if we're talking corporate theater theater with shareholders uh, so this is this is literally corporate business yeah. incorporated <laughs> business LLC. The the way that theaters are financed is another problem with this system. Okay, if you're trying to pay actors a salary, where are you getting that money? Where's the money coming from? And if the answer is wealthy donors and the demographics of wealthy donors tend to skew in a very pointed direction, mm -hmm. uh, that's doesn't speak to speak well to you know this mission of trying to promote equality and diversity and 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 all of those things that theaters claim to purport uh, to to be fans of uh, investing in the business right people who are invested in the success of what you're building not only for the this one output which is art but also a financial outputs they want. You know success in that way having having these other stakeholders who are not these sort of 
individually wealthy patrons who who pay to sit on the board and make all the moves right that it it really spreads it um, in that way it is focused towards commercialism and what people want hmm. is what people the stakeholders the people who are watching um it is what they want rather than this vision of the artistic director i really like that i think the idea of like shareholders and theater is like very outside of the box but here's the thing is that in shakespeare's time it was not because shakespeare's company each of those people involved were called sharers mm -hmm. and they invested in the king's men and so they were artists and they received uh you know sort of a percentage right of their revenue right their their revenue was was you know directly impacting on their financial lives right um so you know for for a mid-sized theater company that's not entirely unheard of and that's kind of for, that's kind of what this is well suited to because broadway's already there Bro broadway is incorporated <laughs> like oh, oh, oh yes <laughs> see Disney. <laughs> Disney musicals. Um, but uh, for the, the, the mid-sized theaters that are, are sort of starting to try to pay people, but not able to offer them the kind of living pay that they need, right they're you're in a bind it's like you're you're basically asking people to volunteer mm -hmm. for you and you know as they're doing a part-time job without any benefits but it, obviously the company couldn't be as like the, the the company itself couldn't be as big because just having that many people would would it would just get too muddy but for the right size of company i think it makes a lot of sense yeah, and I think, I feel like we're starting to see people dip their toe into it, like Flying mm -hmm. V right now. Yeah, that's what I wrote my, my MFA thesis on. It, was not, it wasn't just a sort of hypothetical model of, mm -hmm. um, the, the title of it is uh, the company model, um, the recent development of decentralized theater business structures. Um, so it wasn't just this hypothetical, wouldn't it be great if, you know, everybody got paid and, you know, everything was, was gold. But here's what theaters are doing. This is a thing that is happening during this pandemic, uh, you know, between uh, sort of the summer of George Floyd last year and or, um, pandemic year and theater Me Too. Right, these are all problems that are happening. This isn't just I'm solving them with this idea. It's look at look at these theaters around. Look at Flying V. Look at the American Shakespeare Center. Look at Theater Wilma in Philadelphia. Let look at um, uh, 
there's other ones that I'm not thinking of right now um, that are in the in the thesis. Um, <laughs> no way. I mean, I always talk this much when I'm not high. Uh, anyway, yes, it's it's a thing that is happening, and and here's why it's potentially why it's happening, and why it's a good thing that it's happening, and it should be happening more. I'm really excited that you dipped your toe into that. I was really pumped to have you come on and talk about it. Like, I I have been talking to everybody I can about how I feel like theater is at, like, a make-or-break point a little bit where, like, we love to think that it, it could never go away or it could never die. And I don't think it will ever fully. But, like, look at something like opera and, like, Ask your average theater kid what they think about people who go to college to do opera. Like, most of them will be like, why would you do that? There's no industry for that. Mm -hmm. And if we don't start to make these changes, we're going to fall right into that as well. Yeah. And I think theater's a little bit better off. Like, I think we have changed and evolved more than opera did yeah. over its whole lifespan. But, like, yeah. Uh, I'm glad that we have minds like yours who are thinking about it and helping to put it into practice. Yeah, it is, It is. you know, it, it's slow moving. It, yes, yes. But it, uh, I, I think it's, it, you know, there are places that it's starting to go in the right way. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's understandably slow moving. Like, you have to get people to buy in, and that yeah. is much harder than you would think it is. Yeah, and the the other th thing, the direction that I would like to see theater taking, um, sort of an offshoot of this idea is, okay, now you get benefits. Mm. Uh, and now you get trainings, safety trainings and safety protections. You get disability benefits. Okay, so you have a disability what kind of uh, accommodations are you being afforded? Okay, uh, if it's not a physical disability, what kind of accommodations are you being afforded? Things that we take for granted in theater, like memorization, like the ability to make sustained eye contact, things that are developmental, right? And this, this leads a lot into our previous conversation about neurodiversity mm -hmm. and 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 on with that um and so i've been i've been sort of helped in this uh a friend of mine from my graduate program emma rose kraus who's getting her phd in canterbury Heck yeah. like has, has this big uh big award that she got uh to work with the globe and all this it's a whole it's like really exciting um yeah so she's Super cool, and also has really like put me onto this um, idea, uh, uh, this neurodiversity, um, and and her thesis was well, we have fight coordinators and we have intimacy coordinators are is starting to be a thing. Um, what about for neurodiversity, right? If we have these safety people. Um, how can we make our brains safe and not just around things like handling traumatic, potentially traumatic uh, material and situations, mental, uh, you know, first aid and that kind of thing. It, and it's not just 
this is not just a protection for people who are neurodiverse or, or disabled um, in certain ways, that it's a protections for everybody. It's, it's what accommodations do you require? You're not being asked to present a diagnosis before anybody or, or you know, submit to a lie detector test. Yeah. It's, you know, what, what are things that in the way that you rehearse and the way that you perform that are required of you in order to be able to do your job and uh, the idea that you're not going to get uh, fired or people aren't going to call you difficult to work with for asking for certain accommodations like, oh, this actor doesn't know their lines. Oh, this actor is not good at memorization. That that is something that you would put down somebody for, that you would say, you know, in what part of actor is memorizer? Right? Why, why does somebody need to be have a strong memory in order to be an actor? That has nothing to... What about pretending to be another person? Is memorization involved? No. It's not in the job description. No, when you really think about it, like, weighing it between stage and film, like, if you're a film actor, you can literally, like, look at the line before you film the take and then go out and do the thing and be much more loosely memorized than right. we like or you get a prompter yes. you get a yes. prompter screen what you think you think uh you know jimmy fallon is memorizing that entire script no. backstage oh, and then no. coming out and doing it like no. for bit no they get prompters no, why don't stage actors get prompters i watched a really cool production of richard the second last night uh the original uh practice shakespeare festival in portland oregon like live streamed their richard too and they have like a referee type prompter person that works with these people they they do like the original practice of like they have the scroll in their hand and it's really cool but That's like fun. sometimes you have a giant scroll and you lose your place and, and like what can you do so they have this person on stage to be like hey richard yeah it's your line here's the here's the beginning of it like and yeah i i went into watching it being like i don't know how i'm gonna feel about this and then going into it i was like oh this is really cool and it was a cool tool for the audience too because uh richard too suffers from the the problem of like gloucester gets murdered before the play even happens and they barely talk about the yeah. play that it happens and it, it gave them a chance to like also stop and be like some context for you like, <laughs> that's fine yeah it was a it was a cool thing so yeah, yeah. i mean you're totally right yeah and the, and, and the american shakespeare center also does this when they do their renaissance season when the actors have a week to put up a show they is they have prompters sitting there that they can call line to and we'll give them the line and the show goes on and and the audience is it has accepted that as yeah, a thing yeah. that happens and so we actually we did that. We had a prompter for our entire... It was towards the end of the season uh, where we sort of remounted all of our shows back to back to back. And so we were like, we're using a prompter. And it was Emma Rose was like, for my thesis, I would like to just have this be a thing. Um, so we had a prompter at our performances. And yeah. And, and so interesting. Um, and, and not only... Uh, it, 
there was there was a particular performance where actors were on book, um, not like fully, but but you know they had you know they had books and they had the part of the script in the book to sort of help them. Um, and I was kind of amazed at the feedback we got um, from faculty and management about uh, for that uh, how uncomfortable they were that they were so un they were uncomfortable to bring in uh, people outside the program to watch the show because they were felt so offended by the fact that there would be actors with their scripts on stage just and and somehow we were we were unprofessional uh for trying to be inclusive and and, and that and that was I really just thought like if you were in any other industry right and you said I think that you're not as professional of a work worker because you're in a wheelchair. Watch how that's yes. gonna go down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're you're a bad worker because um, you know because you're blind. Like that's not, that's like you can't <sighs> to say uh, you're a bad worker because you need to wear glasses in order to see better. That's the it doesn't happen. So like why or 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 a hearing aid or any kind of mobility aid, um, that somehow accommodations are are just out of the question, um, and so yeah, it brought about by by Emma Rose's wonderful thesis on the topic. Um, I, I'm I'm very like gung ho for you know I was raised on the standards of memorization that that it is a very ingrained in my psyche and and the way that I perceive people of oh this person isn't memorized they they're not a good actor or they're not memorized they're not a hard worker that they're they're not trying to to learn their lines they're doing other things like they're not committed enough because they aren't memorized and i think that's so in my psyche and everyone else's psyche um, as just being accepted as fact and and that's something that i'm you know, uh, this internalized ableism is something that I am working hard to try and undo. Yeah, that's such a, it's such an interesting point, too, because there's also just the level of, like, you have no clue what's going on in anybody else's life. And as we just talked about, this industry is not fair to its artists in mm -hmm. terms of monetary gain. Like, even taking uh, an ableist level out of it which is still so important to pay attention to but like i'm sorry that i'm not memorized i have to work 12 hour shifts every day before i come into rehearsal and how like, dare you be even a minute late to rehearsal where we're paying you 200 dollars <laughs> for two months of work right like yeah if i if i have to get to five minutes i i will call you and there will be a uh -huh. reprimand uh, like no you'll be reprimanded by the stage manager yeah no and that i mean that's another level of ableism too because i oh my gosh like the executive function thing with people with adhd like good god if somebody's 10 minutes late just give them a break <laughs> again another deeply internalized like you show up on time you show up memorized 
are have just been so ingrained in in our site in our collective theater consciousness as being that's the standard that's that's what you do and i say why yeah why is that what we do i think that's a great question i I'm going to make more of an effort to ask it when I'm in the space more, I think. So Yeah. And so and along with that, like okay, so an actor has executive dysfunction or uh God forbid an emergency happens and they need to uh not even just an emergency. Uh this actor wants to take two weeks off. Uh, to be on vacation because they're a human being who wants to take time off. We have these part-time folks that we can call in to to fill in that they have, that the theater has this supply of people, and you don't need to necessarily have a singular understudy for that role. That that, that there's this core of people that you bring. You say, okay, here's the scripts. Here's the scripts. Learn this thing. We need you. Come on in. Pandemic has taught us that there is a reserve of people who can do that. Like when Omicron hit, I don't know if you're on TikTok at all, but on TikTok, I saw videos of people who were like, Well, I was in the Book of Mormon ensemble two years ago and I'm going back in tonight. Like, all of a sudden could just like spring back up and do that. So yeah. it's like, yeah, if if people are burnt out and want to take a two-week vacation from a year-long run of a show or a tour or whatever, like, yeah, in the same way anybody else can take a vacation. Right, it's like any other job. You could just uh, just say, hey, I'm taking this time off, okay? Yes, and then like, they can the job can adjust and they can fill in as necessary. And it doesn't shut the show down for an actor to be gone. Yes, and the actor doesn't then have to be like, oh, well, I'm considering auditioning for this show, but my friend is getting married one day of the run. Every time! Like, Every time! I didn't work last year because I was like, well, the first half of the year is still a plague, and now that we're vaccinated, my fall has two of my best friend's weddings. I'm... I'm going to the weddings. <laughs> yeah, my my conflicts aren't nearly as exciting as weddings, but yeah, I similarly like more recently, I have been just sort of looking at rehearsal schedules and being like, that is so much of my time. Like in comparison, yeah. like like I never I never processed it before because I didn't have anything better to do. And, and so now, like, it was just like, okay, well, this is extra time in my day, and, and they are, you know, they're giving me something, so, and it'll be, you know, fulfilling in this way, let's go and do it, but looking, and it's, and it's just not, there's just other things that you have time for, yes. that, yeah. that your time is valuable, it's worth something, and, and it's, it's gotta be, like, you know, even, it's okay to be there just for the experience, like, it's okay to do it for, for free, in community theater, and all that amazing thing, but if you're doing it with the expectation that you're being paid, it's, it's got, there's gotta be, it's gotta be proportional in some way to the effort and the time that you're yes. putting in. Yes, if you've, if you've taken out loans to get a degree in this stuff like you have a right to be paid but I, yeah. I, I mean even if you haven't 
if you want to do this and be paid, you have a right to be paid. Right. Like, yeah. And the, the other thing with the, like, the whole, like, idea of corporates um, and, and a salaried actor, a salaried actor who gets benefits, who's full-time, um, that they, you know us living in a society where the government is very clearly not going to subsidize subsidize its artists no. we're not we're not like you know these these other countries that do have these value and 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 they do have this government subsidy for arts um it, it, we're we're very clearly going to be very capitalist and so this feels like the only way outside of the actors equity to really offer some kind of uh, financial stability and protection. We, we just, we deserve it. We do, like, literally just for being human, yes. we deserve it. I, I remember telling my therapist a couple weeks ago that I have made $200 for two months of work, and he was, like, baffled. That's Poverty. Yeah, we're, we're making it's, poverty. It's like pay. less yeah. than a penny. For, yeah, yeah, like no, ridiculous. So I guess lastly, before we sign off, the last time you were here, you talked about some characters in Shakespeare who you would like to see more frequently through a neurodiverse lens. Yeah. Do you have any others that you would like to add to that list? Uh, Tybalt. Ooh, okay. Tybalt, absolutely. Um, and this is uh, partially from the performance and the view of um, a friend of mine, Hannah Rocasano. Her nickname is Rock. Um, and so Rock uh, is a is she's a fight master. She's she's amazing actor combatants, and she played Tybalt um, in the cohort two co you know two years ahead of mine um did romeo and juliet's and this idea that again that 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 tybalt is just sort of has this very clear sense of this is the way that things are and and th this is what we do that um you know, he's not going to take the sort of individual uh, situation of Romeo or anything like that. Like, it's like, this is what we, you know, we're at a party, but I fight Montagues. That's, that's what you've always told me, is that when we see a Montague, we fight them, uh, and, and that he's not fit for that situation. Like, you know, a character like... Uh, Caius Martius and Coriolanus, that, that, that these characters that are like, I'm only a fighter, I'm only a warrior, right? That, they, that this is a, a role that they have been put into and that they don't, um, they don't interact with the rest of society well, huh. right? At the yeah. time of Athens, uh, in a different way, right? Um, that he uh, is this expectation of generosity, that uh, he is so giving um, and just doesn't understand that you're supposed to get something out of it mm -hmm. when you when you help your friend like you, that people don't do it out of, out of some goodness of helping other people that it's it's they're expecting this thing in return and that when that becomes his reality uh his sort of internal code changes and says, okay, well, I'm a misanthrope, and this is 
ter- you know, like, I'm going to get, you know, society is terrible, and everything, and these people that are coming to me and, and you know, asking me for help, well, you taught me what society was, and it wasn't this, so sorry, I don't care if you were my best friend, or, or whatever. Yeah, so here's another example. Um, but back to Tybalt, I, I think, I really think that the, the intensity of his emotion um, coupled with this sort of fixed moral compass while not being aligned to uh, the rest of his household is sort of like make right to that. Before I go, yes, I wanted to respond to a TikTok of yours. <gasps> okay. Um, uh, that you had posted about, um, and I think you were responding to another uh, TikTok about Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony yes, and then being the villain of the play. Yes. Uh, here is why Mark Antony is both the villain and also Shakespeare's ideal leader Ooh, at okay. the same time. Okay, so let's start with, you know, Antony is a villain. That's a long belief that I've held in the pre... I, I, Pretty sure the last time we met, I talked about um, why Brutus, to me, is sort of autistic, you know, quintessentially autistic features, um, and and this sort of I'm using that as a shorthand for a, a laundry list of particular behaviors. Um, if you're interested, go back and watch my previous interview um, about Brutus. So that's that's an aside. He is he is. Um, idealistic, um, and he clearly has the best interests of Rome and its people and in his heart. He feels like this is the right thing to be doing. So Shakespeare's kind of setting him up as the hero of the story, right? That's mm-hmm. that's we're so, we are meant to identify with Brutus's plight, right? That that his goodness and his interests in Rome are winning over his love of uh, Mark Antony. Is he? Hmm, so let's start with the funeral oration. It is my belief that, uh, well, it's, it's very clearly manipulating, manipulating the audience right in this situation. And then immediately once that's done, sort of steps out of and says, you know, work chaos, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> he doesn't say, Oh, good, my friend is being avenged. He's not saying, Thank Caesar, you're at peace at last. Uh, joy. He's saying, Let chaos work. He wants there to be discord. And so, who are the other two in this triumvirate? A child <laughs> and a man who is easily led about the nose like an ass. That is what he says, right? About, uh, the other one, who is not... Is it, is it Lepidus? It's Lepidus. Okay. Nobody remembers Lepidus. Because he's, he's irrelevant. And, and Shakespeare makes sure that he's irrelevant. And, and clearly, um, you know, certainly in the play, Antony is the more in, one in charge of this triumvirate. He is leading Rome, right? Uh, and, and he has this strong position of power. 
it was not about Caesar at all. Like it, it wasn't about is is getting revenge for his friend. It was there's a power vacuum, and I'm sure as hell gonna fill it. Uh huh. Uh, and so you know, goes out, kills, uh, you know, beats Brutus, uh, and Brutus dies by his own hand. And Antony's like, we're gonna go proclaim how great Brutus was to try and win over all the rest of these people, and I'm gonna, you know, wrap up being king of Rome. Uh, so, Mark Antony the villain. Uh, <laughs> however, I am of the strong belief that Shakespeare valued uh, Mark Antony as a leader strongly and set up the other leadership in the play to highlight him thusly. Um, and, I, and I make this because I see a lot of similarities between Mark Antony and Hal hmm. in Henry V. That in the way that these two leaders are portrayed, uh, Antony loves him some plays. Uh, is is a big old partier. Hal sure is too, <laughs> right? Um, is particularly vicious uh, with their criminal, with their war criminals, with their um, with their prisoners, right? Thus, with a blot, I damn him. How, having those Frenchmen executed, right? Very, very strong, very violent, brutal leaders. And uh, verbose, um, charismatic, uh, give great speeches. Obviously, how in Agincourt and, and, you know, Antony with his funeral oration, right? There's just so many similarities. And for the, the, the idea that Shakespeare wrote Hen the Henry, uh, you know, quartets, uh, or yeah, the Henry Henryad about uh, you know this this ideal British ruler, right? Everybody's trying to be Hal. Everybody's trying to be Henry V. Into this play, if he is written to be Britain's ideal ruler in Shakespeare's time. Then guess what? So's Antony. That's true. And he's being put up against this, you know, uh, complete idealist who is impractical to running a country. Right? It could never have been Brutus. Brutus would never have been able to rule Rome. You get Cassius, who uh, is smart but kind of a coward. Right? Uh, does not sort of have what it takes. Um, you have Octavius, who's a child, Lepidus, who is, uh, you know, weak-willed, right? All of these other sort of worse rulers. And then you have Antony as the one who, who wins in the end. It's, it's like, true. yeah, he was, he was the ideal. At least yeah, it's interesting how we recontextualize those things as years go on. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm so glad that you came back. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right, we are signing off.
Thanks, y'all. If you enjoyed today's episode, tune in next week to hear our conversation with Elizabeth Ong about Zoom theater and how we can do better by the AAPI community in Shakespeare. Thanks again to Jeff Miller for coming on, and we will see y'all next week. A thousand thousand sighs to save, oh, lay me where sad true lover never find my grave to weep there.